Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. How many of you have your Bible with you? That works. I have it in my phone, but I can't read it on my phone. I have to read it in paper. But that's okay. God's Word is God's Word that will work in your life. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 2, if you remember back when we started this series, we started with the first two churches and how John talks about each of those churches in Revelation. And each of these seven churches that he's addressing these two can apply to any church in any era. And if it can apply to any church, it can also apply to any individual in any area. So, example, when you're reading these things, when he's reading these churches, we can ask ourselves a question. Could this, could this letter be written to me? If I'm reading Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum, is there something in there that God wants me to do? God wants me to trick. In Ephesus, John talks about them forsaking their first love. I'm sure there's some believers that have fallen in that category. The church in Smyrna talks about persecution. And as we know now, churches and Christians are being persecuted all over the world. And I, I keep saying it's, it's only a matter of time, I think, before we start to see that here. Now, I, I have a lot of Bible. I have a computer program that has all the Bible uh, versions in it. And I don't usually preach out of the King James, but I'll look at it to compare. And I looked at the, the New King James Version. If you look at the New King James, if you have that, each of the churches, they, they put a heading in. Now, it's not, it's, not, you know, it's not canon. It's not inspired. It's just what the authors of the New King James put in as a heading of each church. And each, each church has a heading, and Ephesus was called the Loveless Church. Smyrna was called the Persecuted Church. And then what we're going to talk about today, Pergamum, they, in, they titled the Compromising Church. And I think that that title might describe American churches to a degree here. So let's look at the church in Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So again, just like he did in the first two, he opens up his, his letter with recommend, or condemn, or commendation. He tells them all the things that they're doing right. In, the, in two churches, in Smyrna and Philadelphia, all he, all he does is commend them. In three churches, Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, he starts off with the good things that they're doing and then proceeds to correct them. In Sardis, he corrects them first and then he tells them the things that they're doing. They have a, good, a few good believers there. 
And in Laodicea, all he does is correct them, rebuke them. So at the outset, Pergamum seems like a pretty good church, pretty decent, but they're in need of a little, little correction. They were divided. In other words, they were compromising what they were doing. Some in this church held to the faith in spite of the persecution. However, others in this church began to compromise with the world around them, and we assume to avoid the persecution that came to the churches. So let's go at this verse by verse. Verse 12 says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, every time in the Bible when God uses the word sword, it's always talking about some kind of judgment, some kind of reproof, or in terms of his word. Romans 13, 4, talking about the government, he says that he does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, the government has the right to inflict punishment on you if you disobey the laws. And we believe that when he says they don't carry the sword for nothing, sword was an instrument of death, so we believe that God is okay with the death penalty in certain areas. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Whenever you read God's word, you should pray before you read it. And as you read it, you should let the Holy Spirit tell you what he wants to tell you from the word. We don't read God's word trying to find out what we think. We want God's word to tell us what he wants us to understand. And the Holy Spirit through the, the, through the Bible will get in and judge what we're reading and it will judge our hearts as we read it. You ever read something and you really feel like God's speaking to you with that verse? And it could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. Like, oh God, you, okay, I get it. You're talking to me with that. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. That's what the Holy Spirit does through his word. Then Revelation 19, 15 says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And when he's writing this letter, he's simply reminding the church that he has the ultimate power to judge what's going on. Regardless of personal feelings, regardless of how you think about something, and regardless of your conviction or what is happening in the world around you. God is the ultimate judge. How many of talk to people who have an anti-biblical stance on any issue and they think that because of their feelings about it that they're right i'll give you i'll give an example abortion there are christians who because they feel they have an emotional tie to it they think abortion is okay or they have a personal experience or they know someone who really struggle with this and because of that because of their feelings, they think God's okay with that. And God's just saying, your feelings have no bearing on the truth. You could have convictions and feelings all day long, but ultimately, God is the one who sets the standard. And we have to live by that regardless of how emotionally wrecked we may be because of it. I wrote down, no feelings, no extenuating circumstances, no opinions. God will level judgment in spite of all of those. How many have heard this phrase, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? That's a bunch of hooey. <laughs> because it matters what you believe. And you can be sincerely wrong. And he's telling this church, 
There are things in your church that you may have an attitude about, or you may have a conviction about, but I'm telling you they're wrong, and I'm going to show you where they are. And he uses the sword to get their attention. Now, he doesn't need to elaborate on it. He simply has, he tells them, I have the sword. Now, when, I, when I, our kids are little, we used to, you ever see those paddles with the ball on them? Well, we used to buy those, break the ball off. That was our paddle for the kids. And if they were goofing off or they were, you know, getting in trouble, we would walk into the room and just hold the paddle up. Didn't have to elaborate. They knew what it was. And so it calmed them down, usually. Sometimes you have to administer to the seat of judgment using the paddle. But the point was, Jesus says, I had the sword. That's all he had to say. That should be enough to get their attention to understand what he's trying to say. I have the authority. He walks into the church and holds his sword up. And basically, it's all he has to do to get their attention. He doesn't come in with quick judgment because he wants them to correct them like we want our, our kids to be corrected. Our, our lesson in, in youth today was um, talking about God's word's always true regardless of how we think about it. But he uses parental threats as an example. How many of you parents, and you don't have to raise your hands, have threatened your kids with something but not followed through on it? You know, right? The point was, God is always going to follow through on it. So when God says there's going to be judgment, it's not, he's not kidding. There's going to be judgment. And the, the, what he's saying here is, I want, and as parent, you want, your, you want to correct your child. You don't want to hurt them. You want to use this as a, a learning experience so they don't do something stupid when they get older. And I told the, the, the kids today, if you never get punished for doing anything wrong, what's going to happen is you as an adult are going to think there's no consequences for the things that you do. And you're going to keep doing things now that are illegal and bad and, because, hey, I never got corrected when I was a kid. There's no punishment. There's no consequences for what I do. There must not be any consequences as an adult. And, you know, that's how you get folks in jail because they think there's no consequences to action. And so we want to correct our kids and we use the, the correction and the punishment and the paddle in order to let them see that, yes, there are going to be consequences for the things that you choose to do. And we want you to make those choices now knowing that you don't want to have those consequences later. And that's what he's doing here. God's trying to get the church to come back and not face the ultimate consequence of falling away. Judgment or correction is not contrary to God's love and blessing. How many know that? Right? What's the Bible say? Whom the Lord loves? Chastens. He corrects. He doesn't let him go. As a parent, if you didn't, you didn't love your kid, let them do whatever they wanted to do. Yeah, go out and play in the middle of the street. Leave at 10 o'clock at night and come home at 4 in the morning and you're 10? No problem. No, you, you put limits on them because you love them. And God's trying to get them, you know, to kind of bring them back. Verse 13a goes, and goes I know where you live, this, uh, where Satan has his throne. In other words, he knows what's going on. He knows how bad it is to live in this city. And that literally means Satan's seat. Now in Pennsylvania, I'm sure in other states, you have the county seat, right? What's the county seat? That's where 
the courthouses. That's the rule. That's the, that's the city in that county that has the rule. And he's saying you live literally in Satan's seat. Because Pergamum was the center of idolatry and this city was the only one that was under Roman rule that was allowed to use capital punishment at their discretion. And we're going to see that they did that against one of their church members, one of their believers. So the Bible tells us that Satan is what? He's the prince of the power of the air. That means he has authority here. God has given him limited authority, but he has power. He has authority. And the city of Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And it was the center for worshiping pagan gods, and it was the center for emperor worship. We talked about that weeks, weeks ago. In the center of the town was a great altar to Zeus, the chief Greek god. And nearby was an elegant temple dedicated to the goddess Athena. And then outside the city wall was a shrine to the snake god of medicine. Now I have a little image there. Escapulus, if I said that word right. That's where we get our medical form from. From the snake god of medicine. How does that make you feel about medicine? Snake god. What did the snake tell Eve, you can be like God, right? So this city was, was the worst for idolatry. And it was also known more than any other city for the persecution of Christians. And since it was this idolatrous city, Jesus says this is the place where Satan has his throne. And for saying that, he, he's pretty much on track. Think of a local city now or a local country that you just see the enemy having his way. Afghanistan, North Korea. I saw an interview with a girl who, was in, who escaped from North Korea. And uh, I think North Korea is the worst in the world for Christian persecution. And this girl said basically North Korea is, the entire country is a prison. It's not like you're in a prison, but you're, the country itself is a prison because you can't get out of it. And if they catch you trying to leave, they torture you to death and they torture your family to death. And the only reason she got out is because the, she lived in the northern part of Korea and China was right across and she was able to go over there on the pretense of getting food. But she was saying that in North Korea, there is no word for escape and there is no word for freedom. So if you grow up never knowing that there is such a word or such a meaning as escape or freedom, that's where you live. And that's, where, that's pretty much what this city was like. God is saying to them, I understand the trials and the persecution you guys are going through and I know it's not easy for you to remain faithful and he commends them for being vigilant about it. And we've not had to face that, but other countries have. And I think that's where the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to stand tall in those situations. He says, I know where you live. Satan has his throne there. And verse, the second part says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, again, where Satan lives. So that's the example of capital punishment being used by the city to kill a believer. So they were suffering right now. They were going through hard times. And the word that they used for witness actually is the Greek word martis. We get our word martyr from that. 
And it came to be known, that word comes to be known as one who died because of his faithfulness in such witnessing. So it wasn't like they were just in, in a church, huddling in a church. This guy was out in the streets preaching and sharing the gospel. That's why they killed him. Not because he was in church, but because he was outside trying to influence others. I think it's China that if they catch you witnessing, they kill you or they put you in prison just for witnessing. You can't, you can't lead your kids to Christ in China. You can't witness to them. You can't take them to church. If you're an adult and you're a Christian, they tolerate you, but you can't go any further than that. As long as you stay inside your church and you just, you're good, the minute you start going out in the, into the world and, and sharing the gospel, that's when the persecution started for them. Now, these guys in, in Pergamum, they could have been silent Christians. They could have been just going to church on Sundays and, you know, it, I know what it's going to cost me to go out there, so I'm not going to go out there. But no, in spite of the cost, Jesus says, I know you are faithful in witnessing. I know you are faithful in, in living for me. Now, I got to tell you, you know, sometimes I'm not the best witness for Christ for whatever stupid reason that might be. But whatever the reason could be, it's not going to get me killed. <laughs> right? It, it might cost me to be embarrassed. Poor, more, poor, poor me. These guys were doing it in spite of the death that was hanging over them. Think about this for a minute. What if that were us? What if, what if our church were losing members to death because of their witness? What would, we, what would you think? Would that scare you not doing it? Or would that empower you to do it more? I think this church was empowering it to do it more. Antipas, who was a member of their church, was martyred for being an outspoken witness. And Jesus says, he's my faithful witness. So he was a believer. Not only did he, did he wit bear witness to Jesus, he had a relationship with Jesus, which caused him to be a witness. So this was a church who was suffering greatly for their dedication to the Lord. Now you would think that I would want God to say that about me. But there's more. Jesus would not let them slide in another area. The Bible says, be perfect as I am perfect, right? You would think that this, this church was suffering and doing all these great things that God would say, all right, that's, that's enough. You, know, you guys are good, I'll let you go. But he doesn't. He wants to correct them. And I, I was asking the kids today, and I, I guess they can access their grades on their phone. <laughs> I said, Woody, how are you guys doing in school? Oh, straight A's. Straight A's. I said, what? And he pulls up his phone and he starts accessing his grades. I'm like, what? And, and Hudson pulls up his phone and he goes, I don't know if he's reading it or not. He goes, A plus, A plus, F minus. <laughs> I went, what, what, what? <laughs> I said, what was that in? He goes, that was math. I said, whoa, wait, what? It, I don't know if he's, or he was just pulling my leg or whatever, but think about that. If your child had three A's but an F in math, would you say, oh, those three A's are good enough. Don't worry about math. You'll never use that. Or do you say, hey, great job. Let's fix the F. That's what Jesus is doing. He's going, great job. Let's fix the F here we got going on in the class. 
Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. The church as a whole was faithful to Christ, but they had a group in the church who needed the correction. And the problem was the church knew that they were there and did not correct them. They weren't addressing the problem. They kind of were letting them go on their own. And what weren't they talking about? What weren't they challenging on? The teaching of Balaam. What's the teaching of Balaam? Well, if you know the story, Balaam was a true prophet of God in the Old Testament. But he was, and one commentary says, he was prostituting himself to everybody else. He's charging money for his his prophet services. So King Balak, the enemy of Israel, hired him to curse Israel. And he was going to pay him money. Balaam, who was an Israelite, a prophet of God, was hired to curse his own people. So he takes the money. He goes and tries to curse them and then opens his mouth and a blessing comes out of his mouth. He couldn't curse them. No matter what he did, no matter what he tried to do, he couldn't curse them. So, Instead of cursing them, what did he do? He said, start little and work from the inside out. You need to get them to participate in the world system in small ways. Tell them to start joining their neighbors as they, as they have idol sacrifices. Be a good neighbor and let them go out and, and sacrifice. You know, they're still Israelites and that doesn't mean anything, but go have them sacrifice with their neighbors so they can prove themselves to be good neighbors. And they're not weird. Let them do that. But also in that, they had sexual immorality involved with idol worship. And so he said, well, yeah, it, it, you're, still, you're, still, you're still a believer, still Israelite. Go ahead and do that and start there. King Balak, make them do that first. And then... Then as that progresses, have them marry other women, Moabite women. No big deal. You, you marry outside your faith, not a, not a big deal. And what's going to happen? You just do this a little bit, and then that's going to take them away better than any cursing I can do. And so what do you have in this church is you have a, church, a group of church people who are entertaining themselves with the world and compromising with the world system in order to get along. And he's saying... First, they shouldn't be doing that. And second, you, the church, need to be stopping it. He says, if you don't, I'm going to do it. The Bible told them not to intermarry, right? Because just like the New Testament, God says, don't be unequally yoked because they will draw you away. Numbers 21.1 says, when Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women as part of their worship, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. In other words, hey, Christian, come join us at our party today. You'll be drinking, but you don't have to drink. You can be partying and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, it's okay. Just be a good neighbor. So the people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must be put to death, those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. So God takes compromise 
pretty seriously. Harry says, eh, it's okay. No, he says, kill those who are responsible for it. And Numbers 31, 15 says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so that the plague struck the Lord's people. Because Balaam's thing worked, his inside out, his compromise, drawing people away, it actually, it worked. And it was beginning to separate them from God. Notice that persecution and hardship didn't turn the church away. Most of the church. And just like the Israelites, it wasn't a curse from without. It was a slow acceptance of things coming in to compromise. What's the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 15? Bad company corrupts good morals. It doesn't say the other way around. Very seldom are you able to affect someone's life in a positive way unless they get saved. How many have ever tried to change someone? There's no newlyweds here, but how many of you try to newlyweds try to change your spouse? How does that work out? You can't, bad company will affect good morals. And I've said this before, when you, when you marry an unbeliever, you may love each other at first, but one of two things is gonna happen. There's gonna come a point where you're gonna divide as a Christian and a person who doesn't believe. You're gonna fight about it and argue about whatever that decision might be. And 99% of the time, the Christian caves in to keep the peace. And then what happens? They both fall away. And that's exactly what happened with Israel, and that's exactly what God is saying to the church in Pergamum. The same thing's happening, and unless you stop it, your whole church is going to go that way. Verse 14 talks about what we just read who taught Balak to entice your Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. These two practices were part of the ritual worship of pagan gods. Some church members were professing faith, but were still participating in these idol worship ceremonies, thinking it was okay. And since participation in these festivals involved temple prostitutes, that was part of it and celebrated by eating the meat that was sacrificed at that time. Now, there's a passage in the Bible that says, talks about meat sacrificed to idols. How many know that? I think it's 1 Corinthians 7, maybe. What it talks about is, there's two different things. At this juncture, this what's happening here, these guys were actually going to the feast celebrating and worshiping this pagan god and then having the feast of that animal that they killed and eating that at that same time. In Corinthians, I think, Paul talks about meat sacrificed to idols. And what that's talking about is if you go to a market in town, you see all this meat hanging up for sale. Some of it may be in sacrifice to idols, some of it may not have been. And Paul's point was, hey, it's not that big a deal. If it's just hanging there, you're not participating in the service, you're not participating in the worship, and you weren't even there when they killed the animal, 
So it's okay. You can buy that animal. He says, but if it bothers you, then don't do it. If, it, if, it, if you really look at that and say, you know, it really bugs me when you, you know, I don't want to do that. And so he's saying it's okay. If it doesn't bother you, no problem. If it bothers you, then don't do it. Different from this. I'll, I'll give you an example. And this is not a license. This is Bible. Bible does not condemn drinking. How many know that? It condemns drunkenness. Doesn't condemn drinking. When I was a new Christian, and I was at work in, in Pittsburgh, and there was a guy working with me as a, he was a mature Christian. Dad was a preacher, he'd been a Christian all his life, and we were 20-something at the time. And we go out after work with the guys at work, and he, order, he has a beer. For him, then no big deal. And just one beer. For me, when I saw that, I was like, ah. Because I felt like it ruined the witness we had with the people at work. And I wasn't taking one because I used to drink a lot. So I, it, for me, I'm not going to do it. Because it bugs me. But I'm not going to tell others that they can't do it if the Spirit of God isn't convincing them or correcting them to do it. You see what I'm saying? And Paul's saying, this is, or uh, John's saying, this is, not that, this is not that case. This is a case of blatant pagan worship, the ceremony, and you're eating it at the ceremony. So there's two different things. The two of them don't apply to each other. Now, these celebrations were prerequisites of citizenship and acceptance in the city. If you did not participate in these things, you were considered an outcast, and which is why they persecuted you, you weren't allowed to have a job or anything like that. And so the folks who were participating were doing it because it helped benefit them in the society they lived in. Christians were being involved with these in order to advance themselves in society, to fit in, to not seem weird, to be accepted. They were compromising to go along to get along. And the church wasn't stopping it. Those who were involved thought it was harmless celebration, nothing wrong with it. I mean, everybody else is doing it. How many of you have kids that have said, everybody else is doing it? But everybody else is doing it. And what's your response? If everybody else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? And they would say, yes, being a smart aleck. Usually, if it's just because everybody else is doing it, it's not a good thing. <laughs> How often do we get tempted to participate in something that we know is wrong? We know we shouldn't do it, but you don't want to appear standoffish or weird or judgmental, so you're tempted to join in. We fool ourselves if we're thinking that we can try to fit in and be accepted because you're not going to be. If you do everything to, to fit in, then you're not going to be in God's kingdom. And if you do everything to serve God, you're not going to fit in with everybody else regardless of how you try to be like them. I wrote down here, if you find yourself involved in something because it seems advantageous to you, but you know it goes against God, you need to leave whatever that might be. 
regardless of the consequences. Okay, I don't have this in my notes. And maybe you'll get mad at me, I don't know. How many, I don't know if anybody here is involved with Freemasonry at all. Freemasonry, I don't know much about it other than it does not align with Christianity. Not at all. And the things that they make you do in Freemasonry, the Bible specifically says don't do. Although there are a lot of Christians who are involved in Freemasonry. I would tell them they need to stop that. They're compromising in order to go along because the things that they make you do, the Bible specifically says don't do. And that's kind of what's happening with this church. They were involved in something because it was helping them in society. It was allowing them to get jobs. It was allowing them to eat. They weren't being persecuted. They weren't being looked down on. They were, they were compromising their faith. And God says, I hate that. I hate it. So the directive was to both the church and the people. They both had to make a choice. Verse 15 says, Likewise, you also hold to the, have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The church in Ephesus had those folks as well. And according to more than one commentary, both Balaam, the names Balaam and Nicolaitans, have the same meaning. They both mean something along the lines of to conquer or rule the people. And if you rule the people, that means you overrule God. And now you are the leader of those people rather than God. And usually those people have easier and better sounding rules. So both of these teachings were people who professed to be Christians but lived like the world. There was one big difference though between the two of them. The teaching of Balaam involved people specifically getting involved in idol worship. In other words, it's okay to be part of the town feast because you want to fit in. That's their, you know, since in, and, and since immorality was part of their, quote, religion, it's okay to participate because our gods say it's okay. You need permission to do this? You have permission. Our gods say it's okay. No problem. That was, that was the Balaam thing. The Nicolaitans did the same but without the idol part of it. They didn't need permission. They just wanted someone else to tell them it was okay to do it. The folks who were doing it Balaam's way were doing it because they thought, well, it's a, it's a religion, and these folks are doing it, so I must be allowed to do it too. The Nicolaitans were like, I don't care what anybody says, any religion, just do what you want to do because it feels good to you. So this must have been a big problem in the church. It may have been a small group of people, but it was a problem in the church. And it wasn't just a, a small handful of people. It seems that there was a teaching to that effect going on in that church in Pergamum. Not just a few renegades who were out there, but a whole contingent that were trying to suck other believers into it. And the church was responsible for not fixing it. So what's he tell them in verse 16? He says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, repent. Quit turning a blind eye to what's going on and stop it. They tolerated these teachings and God says, you need to, your leadership, you need to stop it. Why? Because the church is responsible for the sheep. 
We're responsible for the people who attend. And we will be judged on how we protect them from the enemy. And one way of protecting them is for us to stop anything that's going to hurt them, to discourage them, or dissuade young people, young believers. They came across that in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, Paul says, It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the last day. In other words, call him out, kick him out, but pray for him. Turn him over to what's ultimately going to happen to them. If you read 2 Corinthians, the guy does get restored. But it took the church correcting him, kicking out the, sh- the wolf, in order to have him come back. We're to protect the sheep by keeping the wolves out. And if we don't do that, then we're allowing innocent folks to be hurt. People who haven't grown in the Lord, don't know a lot yet, or even those who do, from being taught things that aren't in the Bible. Acts 20, verse 29 says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. The church wasn't being on their guard. And he was also issuing issuing a special threat to those who were the heretical in their beliefs and teachings. The church was a good church. They just were looking away, and they needed to correct that. But God says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you, church, and I'm going to fight against them, the problem children, with the sword of my mouth. He's going to come physically and fight with them against, with the word of God. What's verse 12 tell us back in verse 12? Sharp two-edged sword. What does a sword represent? Judgment, correction. So it says, Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to correct you. You don't ever want to be corrected by God. (laughs) You do to get back. But the Bible says examine yourself first. If we don't check ourselves, God's going to check it for us. God puts his mind to correcting you. He is going to get the job done. Look at Old Testament Israel. How many times did God send prophets to them to get their attention and they kept falling away and sinning and falling away? And finally God says, okay, I've had enough. He exiles them to torment and sorrow for 70 years. Horrible time for them. Why? Because they wouldn't quit being idol worshipers. It took 70 years of punishment and exile and brutality to finally get their attention. And so, up to today, Israel, as a nation, is not idol worshipers. Now, they're not believers. They're not Messianic Jews, a lot of them. But as a nation, they're not idol worshipers. God did his job but it took 70 years of pain and punishment to get it done. 
God's going to bring you to where you need Him. And if that means He's going to get your attention, by hard times, He's going to do it. Now the reason I think this could be for anyone today is because of the next verse. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Plural. And it means to anyone. Anyone who will hear. I think we fall into that category. These are, there are obviously people who do not respond to correction. But God wants us to he- heed the warning. So we ask ourselves, does this speak to me? We mentioned at the beginning, not only is this addressed to churches, it's also addressed to individuals. The church could be great. But am I compromising? Does this activity that I'm involved in honor God or does it make me compromise what I believe and know to be true? Am I living in a manner that I know in my heart is wrong but I'm just justifying it? Me and God have have an arrangement. Do my ears need to be opened to hear the truth. I asked this on Wednesday night. How many of you like to be corrected? How many like, how many, how many like someone telling you that you're wrong? No one likes to, being told they're wrong. But if we, are, if we really want to serve God, we have to be open to that. The Bible says, if you have an ear to hear, let him say, let him, let, hear what I'm saying to you. Because to get right, we have to admit that we're wrong. And it's not easy to do. God wants us to not only hear the truth, but to do what we know is right. And what's going to happen if we hear the truth, it may sting, but we do the right thing. God's punishments are always remedial. They're always designed to bring us back. So what happens? In verse 17, the second part says, To him who overcomes... In other words, you hear it, you repent of it, and you get back to normal. I will give some of the hidden manna. Now this is where it starts to get you know, kind of funky with what's hidden manna. Well, in John 6, 48, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Remember, manna was what the Israelites ate in the desert. So your forefathers ate manna in the desert, but they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread, that which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Hidden manna is basically Christ's nature. We will become like Christ. As bread he is given and he sustains our spiritual life, as we constantly partake of him. Manna. In other words, what's the Bible? The Bible refers to itself as bread. It refers to itself as food. The more we intake food from the Bible, the more we will become like Christ. And that when we repent and we quit compromising, Jesus says, I'm going to make you more like me. I'm going to give you my nature. I'm going to make you have the mind of Christ after you repent and come back. And the more we do what the Holy Spirit prompts us to do, in other words, reading and praying, the more we will have the nature of Christ. 
because Jesus will impart more to us as we read. He will make us more like him. And at that point, he will give us the ability to defeat these things in our lives that keep us separated or keep us wanting to compromise. The more you read and the more you study, the less you're going to compromise. And if we truly repent, repent, God will give you the desire and the ability to be what he already wants you to be. What else will you do? Verse 17, the last part. It says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, only to, known only to him who receives it. Well, in Bible times, a white pebble, a white stone was used in a judicial courtroom. A white stone would indicate a vote of innocence. A dark stone would be guilty. A white stone would be a vote of not guilty. And if we hear what Jesus is saying to us and do what he asks, then we will be not guilty in his eyes. Our sins will be blotted out as if we never sinned. What's justification? Justification, just as if I never sinned. How many of you know the old song, a new name written down in glory, right? A new name means a new nature. It's your adopted name. When you're adopted, your name becomes the name of the person who adopts you. When you receive salvation and forgiveness, you now have the name of your heavenly father. He is your father. The new name also means a new nature a spiritual nature that desires to please God. I know my wife's teaching the kids about water baptism today. We had to find a, a Barbie doll to dunk, you know, so we can show what's going on. Couldn't find any of those in a house of 55 women. But water baptism, you're, you're burying the old man. The old person that you used to be, you're burying in the ground. When you bring them up, you're a new creature. And that's exactly what this is. You have a new nature. You're a new person. You're no longer who you used to be. Now you have the name of your father as your father. And that spiritual nature now desires to please God. The Bible says before we became a Christian, we didn't want to please God. We could not please God. And now that we are a believer, Holy Spirit lives in us. Now we have that want to. We want to please God. And the last part of the verse says, known only to him who receives it. Once you're saved and you have a relationship, no one can really describe what's happened to you except you. And even then, it kind of seems incomplete. You try to talk to someone, the light bulb goes off in your head and you, you get it. You don't know everything yet, but you, you, you get what these Christians are talking about. But then you try to talk to someone who's not a Christian and they, you just, you can't, they don't understand. Only you can understand that. Until they become a Christian, then their light bulb goes off and they understand it. So don't be discouraged when you talk to someone and they think you're crazy because the Bible says they literally can't understand what you're saying. The Bible says that these things are written that you may know. Now you know that you're a Christian. No one else can understand it, but now you know. Once you have the white stone in a new nature, even if nobody else knows or understands it, you know exactly what happened. You walk away understanding it. Compromise allows you to feel, feel that things are okay because I have one foot in the church. Well, the problem is with one foot in the church, you have one foot in the world. And at some point, you're going to be faced with a choice. Either you repent of the compromise 
or God will attempt to bring you back. But the longer you go in that position, the harder it's going to be for God to get you to come back. The more we walk away, the further we get away from God, the harder it is for God to bring us back because we've now compromised ourselves to the point, and we're going to see in Laodicea how they compromise themselves to the, to the nth degree. And God says there's nothing but judgment for you. We want to make sure that our lives are not one of compromise. That no matter what the world offers, God always has something better. And even if it's not what we think it should be, just as parents, you're, you give your kids what they need to eat, not what they want to eat. You do it because you know that whatever God wants is best. And we sang that song, Resurrection, today. We have a lot of folks in our church and friends of ours who are facing serious, serious health issues. Then unless God intervenes, they're going to be going to glory. But they also know what the resurrection means. That's not the end. They know what's coming. Nobody wants to leave. But when you, when you know and you haven't compromised and you know you're living for God, when that day comes for each one of us, it's not as fearful as you think it might be. Because we talked about heaven, you know, angels escort you to heaven. So I believe that God gives that person peace at that moment. But you're not going to have that peace if you live a compromised life. Because the more you compromise, the further you're going to get away from God. And the further you walk, the harder it's going to be to get you back. And to the point where you walk away for good. We want to be, we want to be assured that we have that resurrection when our time comes. But you stand. Again, I'm late. You bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for bringing us into your kingdom, for making the light bulb go off in our head. And now we have a relationship with you, and we're excited about that. We're really anticipating great things. We want to keep our life comp concentrated on you. Not be distracted by the things in the world. Not be distracted by all the evil that may be going on around us, Lord. It's there. We do what we can, and we pray for those, but we, our mind is still focused on you and I pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit that you would give us that unction that want to that drive basically Lord we want revival in our life so wake up every morning excited for what God is going to do wake up the next morning excited for what God's going to do and the more we do that the more that you're going to get us out there and more and more people will see what you're doing and word will get out that God is doing something in my life, in this church, and whatever that is, I want it. And Lord, I pray that you just equip us for that. Bless us as we go out today and allow us to honor you with all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And again, everyone said, amen. So be it. You have a great week. See you Wednesday night. Continue to pray for those you know who need Christ.
And give me testimonies of what God's doing in your life. It's encouraging to hear that. 